Weekly Appellate Report for March 24th, 2017. I'm your host, Brian Cardile. Very happy to welcome you to another edition of our program. It's your source each Friday. Commentary and insights from practitioners, jurists, and academics on salient appellate developments. This week's show focuses on just about the most salient of all judicial events, the confirmation hearings, where Judge Neil Gorsuch nominated to the U.S. Supreme Court to fill the vacancy left by the late Antonin Scalia. Our guests... Vikram Amar, Dean of the University of Illinois College of Law, and David Dorson of Counsel with Cedric LLP and author of the new book The Unexpected Scalia, a Conservative Justice's Liberal Opinions, try to glean Gorsuch's jurisprudential inclinations, notwithstanding the judge's artful dodging of most substantive legal questions posed to him by the Senate Judiciary Committee this week. Our guest also discussed that practice of nominees claiming that judicial independence prevents them from offering insights as to how they'd have ruled and past Supreme Court cases. And both guests agree that more substantive discourse at these hearings would better serve the Republic, especially in a modern era that features a more prominent Supreme Court. Nonetheless, from the answers that Judge Gorsuch did provide, our guests will attempt to discern his particular brand of originalism and his likely impact on a range of areas of jurisprudence, such as abortion, guns, campaign finance, labor law, and Chevron deference, among others. They'll also describe the heightened partisan rancor attending these hearings after former President Obama's nominee Merrick Garland was denied the opportunity to receive such hearings. Before we get to my guests, I'd like to first remind you, as always, that CLE credit is available for listeners of the podcast. Just find a short true-false test on the dailyjournal.com page where this program appears. Without any further preamble, then, I present my conversation with Dean Vikram Omar and David Dorson. Happy to welcome now to the podcast a distinguished pair of guests we have from the University of Illinois College of the Law, Dean Vikram Amar, uh, served previously in the, the UC system in various capacities at Davis, Berkeley, UCLA, and Hastings. Dean Amar, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. And from the Washington, D.C. office of Cedric, we have David Dorson of Counsel to the Firm, and also the author of a recent book, The, the Unexpected Scalia, a Conservative Justice's Liberal Opinions. Mr. Dorson, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. So it's a true delight having both of you here, especially to talk about a very, very salient legal event, certainly one that comes along pretty infrequently. I think the last Supreme Court nomination hearing we had was uh, back in 2010, I want to say so. I'm kind of the constitutional law nerds, a Super Bowl here to to hash out. So we'll go ahead and get right into it. But before we get into the, the hearings themselves, we might spend a moment on the 13 months that preceded them and the tumult that was attendant to those 13 months. Certainly, uh, the Democratic senators at the outset of the hearings did spend some time on chatting about the uh, political dynamics of Merrick Garland's nomination and then the fact that he, he did not get a hearing in front of the Senate Judiciary Committee. Um, Mr. Dorson, how do you feel that uh, that dynamic played out in these hearings? What sort of cloud did that cast upon Judge Gorsuch's uh, nomination hearings this week? Well, I think it does cast a cloud. I think I know Merrick Garland and uh, respect him tremendously. He was a law clerk to uh, Henry Friendly, the subject of an earlier book of mine. I think it sort of had a similar effect that Bush v. Gore had on the presidency. It, it uh, sat with a decision by the uh, su- Supreme Court that, in effect, or ultimately awarded the presidency to George W. Bush. Uh, uh, in uh, 2000, I think this latest uh, decision by the uh, Republicans not to have a hearing and proceed with the nomination of uh, Merrick Garland puts a 
cloud on their integrity, their devotion to the Constitution. Obviously, like the Supreme Court, it had the power to do so, but that's a different thing from being wise to do so or good for the country to do so. Mr. Amar? Yeah, I uh, I wouldn't disagree with any of that. Uh, I do think that what the Republicans did in the Senate did not violate anything that's in the text or history uh, of the Constitution uh, as a legal matter. I think it was, uh, as Mr. Dorsey put it, very unwise. I think it escalated uh, the, the tension between the two parties. Uh, I think it was unprecedented, um, even if it wasn't um, illegal. And I do think it did cast a cloud, especially for the Democrats. It seemed that the Democrats in the Senate really had that in the front, not the back of their mind, as they approached this hearing with Judge Gorsuch. I think the Republicans didn't seem to care about it. Uh, but as we'll discuss probably later on, uh, there's an effort by the Democrats to maintain a filibuster. And I think that effort uh, was probably given momentum by the hard feelings that the Democrats understandably had concerning the treatment of, of Mr. Garland. Yeah, if I just may add one thing, I don't think there would have been a filibuster without the uh, Garland uh, episode because there was, there's not been a filibuster and Bork and others or Thomas and uh, Lito. And I think it's really the uh, conduct of the Republicans last year that will precipitate in all likelihood a filibuster. There was a filibuster for Justice Alito. It just wasn't successful. Remember, oh, President sorry. Obama, yeah. when a senator, he actually led that filibuster, which caused him some political difficulty. But there was a cloture vote. Um, and even though Justice Alito got fewer than 60 votes on the merit, there were 60 senators who brought the measure to uh, a floor vote. So there was a, you know, these things have been, ever since the Bork hearings, these things have been more uh, contentious. And uh, and I agree with Mr. Dorsen that the chances of a filibuster here um, were uh, higher because of, of Merrick Garland. And maybe we wouldn't have a filibuster if Garland had gotten a floor vote and been voted down on the floor. Then the Dems may feel like that's what they should do here, too. They should give uh, Mr. Gorsuch a floor vote and vote against him. Uh, but I think it was easy for the for the Dems to at least try a filibuster uh, because of the uh, shenanigans that the Republicans pulled last year. I mean, jumping off that point, discussing the political truculence of these hearings put into a historical context, multiple senators from the Republican cohort commented on the unhappiness with, with their Democratic colleagues, including Senator Graham on Wednesday, complaining over the political rancor from the Democrats, saying that that they had, quote-unquote, taken the nomination process to a place it was never intended to go. You gentlemen have mentioned uh, previous hearings that have been somewhat contentious. Is Senator Graham correct that this process has become more political this time than in, in the past, or is this uh, one chapter in a series of similar occurrences? Well, I think that certainly the decision by the Republicans to deny any uh, hearing or process to Judge Garland that did raise the stakes, and that was a game changer in the, the dynamic. Um, I think we have to be careful here to distinguish between politics, partisan politics, uh, which I think are an improper factor to be taking into account in an undue way, versus uh, an assessment of where someone, if placed on the Supreme Court, is likely to move the country jurisprudentially. I don't remotely think that it's inconsistent with the, the design of the Constitution 
that the president and the Senate both take into account uh, what kind of justice someone is likely to be once on the court. And that includes the kinds of uh, directions in which uh, that person is likely to move American law. It doesn't just include where the person went to law school and whether the person is a good writer and whether the person uh, gets along well with colleagues. It, it involves a substantive assessment of one's constitutional vision and uh, comparing that vision of the nominee to the vision of the individual senator or the individual president. I don't think there's anything politically wrong about that. And one of the reasons that I think we see more and more attempts to do that, even though uh, the nominees um, don't play along and they don't answer questions uh, that should be answered, we'll get into that later. Uh, one of the reasons that's so is because we have a Supreme Court that, A, does a lot more than it used to a um, uh, uh, hundred years ago, and B, is relatively uh, evenly divided between people who have a more liberal approach to interpreting the Constitution versus um, a more conservative approach toward interpreting the Constitution. So I don't think there's anything wrong in presidents and senators taking that into account as long as they're not asking for, for promises from a nominee. Uh, but if that's what Senator Graham means by politics, then I think he's wrong. That's not inconsistent with the design of the system. But I do think that politics play too much of a role in the following sense. The Senate no longer views this matter as one of its own institutional prerogative. I think Republican senators see themselves as Republicans, not senators, and Democratic senators see themselves as Democrats, not senators. There's not enough institutional identity, and there's too much party identity that affects people's bottom lines uh, in these uh, proceedings. I agree with uh, Gina Marr, and uh, just add a couple of things, and that is, first, uh, the contentious fight over the Supreme Court is a relatively recent phenomenon, and for many years there weren't even hearings. Another is that the uh, battles over uh, Judge Bork and Judge Thomas were pretty contentious themselves. And finally, that uh, there are probably still people around who think that uh, it is the president's prerogative to pick somebody and so long as he is qualified that should be the end of it and qualified not by virtue of individual positions uh both uh Dietmar and i take the opposite point of view before we get into some specific areas of law that were discussed in the hearings we could lay out a few of the the, the hearings highlights and, and talk about sort of the impression that you feel like judge uh, gorsuch made upon maybe the american public and the committee mr dorson uh, what were some of the, the highlights of these these hearings well, I think he, first of all, I think we, uh, Judge Gorsuch, uh, is probably better than we had any right to uh, expect from, uh, President Trump. I think he's a, uh, intelligent, well-educated, uh, not an extreme person in the mold of, uh, say, Judge Bork or others, although he may prove to be, uh, in the future. Uh, I think the main thing is that he made a, a, a reasonably good impression from his statements and demeanor, which meant that uh, the slight possibility that he would lose a Republican uh, on the, uh, in the Senate is, is, is wishful thinking for the Democrats. Uh, so I, I think in general, and I'll stick to my initial comments generally, is that he made a, a, a good impression and did nothing to hurt himself. Dina Mark, general thoughts? Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think he, he came across as a very smart, very polished, very careful, very very lawyerly, 
very professional person who was uh, playing not to lose Republican votes. And he uh, did not want to say anything um, substantive. Uh, I think I think the, the critics on the Democratic side are correct that he uh, dodged, and I think inappropriately, all the substantive questions about his views on important areas of law. But from his point of view, he had very little to gain by being forthcoming, and he had the possibility of providing ammunition that could cost him uh, uh, some of the votes that he already assumes that he has. Now, the question uh, for the filibuster will be um, not whether there are 52 or more Republican uh, senators, 50 or more Republican senators who would vote to confirm him on the floor, but whether all of those Republicans will feel comfortable in blowing up uh, the filibuster, uh, the so-called nuclear option, uh, when it comes to Supreme Court appointments, um, should the should the Rep- uh, Democrats succeed in uh, in uh, holding the line uh, uh, on the filibuster? And forcing uh, forcing the Republicans to to undertake filibuster reform. I don't know how his performance played into that question, but certainly he he came across as the smart, um, careful jurist that he was presented as being before the hearing. Let me just add one one point about the uh, statements of the Democrats about uh, the lack of forthcoming on the part of Gorsuch. I'll just mention that uh, during the hearings, committee hearings on Justice Scalia in 1986, uh, Senator Dennis Picacini described Scalia as, quote, probably one of the most evasive nominees I have ever seen, close quote. So I think it's sort of typical for the minority party to uh, attack the uh, nominee as evasive, and sometimes with, with total justification, I'm not disagreeing with uh, the comments of uh, Dean Amar that maybe he should have asked, answered more questions. And, and I, I, would, I would jump in there, too, um, that it's not just uh, Justice Scalia and Judge Gorsuch, but it's Justice Kagan, it's Justice Ginsburg. Uh, all of these justices and nominees of both parties have decided that uh, it's in their personal interest to not answer substantive questions, and they've gotten away with it, and until and unless the Senate as an institution says, hey, we're not going to confirm people who don't provide us the relevant information, uh, then uh, if I were advising any nominee, I would advise them to do exactly what Judge Gorsuch did. I, I think it's in Judge Gorsuch's best interest to, to uh, clam up the way he did. I just don't know that it's in the Senate and the country's best interest not to have these hearings have any real meaning. Uh, and, and Mr. Dorsen is right that we didn't have these hearings 50, 100 years ago the way we do now. But remember... Um, before the 1950s, the Supreme Court didn't really decide uh, important cases with the frequency that they do modernly. So with the increased importance of the judiciary and the Supreme Court goes increased importance of the selection process and these hearings. Yeah, maybe uh, just teasing that out a little bit more, Dean Amar, you submitted a, an opinion piece to the Washington Post on this exact topic discussing that it'd be worthwhile and it should be almost a requirement for nominees to be more forthcoming in terms of their substantive views on the law. Um, I guess, why do you feel that there's not so much merit in the to give an excuse for not providing substantive answers that it would be unethical to do so or it would be sort of forecasting or promising votes? Well, certainly it is unethical to promise a vote, and no one is asking for promises. But no one would suggest that Judge Bork acted unethically when he answered questions about what he thought uh, concerning already decided Supreme Court cases. Um, a decade ago, the U.S. Supreme Court, by a 5-4 to four vote, struck down a Minnesota law 
that prohibited people running for judge, judicial office in the state of Minnesota from speaking out on, on uh, legal issues of the day. And Justice Scalia wrote in that opinion that um, generalizations about judicial philosophy mean nothing unless they're, until they're applied to the context of particular issues that come before courts. And when the Supreme Court struck down that law, they weren't striking down a law that was dictated by principles of uh, judicial ethics. There's nothing unethical about saying, I, as a judge, would always read the briefs, listen to the arguments, maintain an open mind. Um, I can't tell you how I would rule. I can tell you I found the majority in X case persuasive and the dissent less persuasive or the concurrence persuasive. So asking a nominee about past cases and what they thought of the opinions, which ones they thought were more persuasive, none of that involves promises or commitments of the kind that run afoul of judicial ethics. I should make one other point here, too. Um, being the careful lawyer that he was, um, when Judge Gorsuch said he would uh, have run out of the White House if uh, the questions had gotten close to uh, seeking a promise or commitment uh, about Roe versus Wade, notice he didn't say that he would find it inappropriate for a president to ask what he thought of Roe versus Wade. He said it would it would have caused him to flee if he'd been asked how he would rule. There's a difference between how you would rule versus what you thought of the opinions um, and, uh, and uh, what your take on them was, maintaining an open mind and uh, a willingness to consider all factors, including stare decisis, if and when an issue comes before you. Oh, that's that. that uh, so judges or, or nominees or answer questions about their prior judicial opinions, say, on the Court of Appeals or their law review articles, and sometimes they're about Supreme Court cases. So exactly. There are times when an issue, a question could be pointed enough so that it telegraphs or is designed to telegraph a vote. But absent that, uh, I agree. Why, you know, the judges should be required to tell more than they're saying. Indeed. As Mr. Griffin pointed out, if it violates judicial ethics to talk about an issue that might come before the court again, why does it not violate judicial ethics to do so just because you happen to have talked about it in the past? Uh, in my Washington uh, um, Post op-ed, I pointed out the justices themselves weigh in on these issues when they decide cases, and that doesn't mean that they've prejudged those issues in subsequent cases when those issues recur. Moreover, if it really violated judicial ethics to talk about the substance of past cases, it would also violate judicial ethics to talk about the substance of judicial philosophy. If I say I'm very committed to stare decisis, or I'm very opposed to using foreign sources to interpret the, the U.S. Constitution, I'm, why am I not locking in in a, in, a, in a promissory way with respect to those issues? Um, the line is between a promise versus information about what you currently feel, not between specific cases and generalized statements of judicial philosophy versus articles you've written in the past versus things that are not as controversial. All of those lines don't make sense. The only line that makes sense is between a commitment slash promise on the one hand, which should not be given and should not be sought, versus information about what one thinks of past rulings or past ideas. Perhaps with that caveat that Judge Gorsuch did not reveal too much, we'll nonetheless try to read some tea leaves here in some particular areas of law to see if we can glean any of his 
inclinations uh, within them. Maybe touching first on an issue that came up frequently in the hearings, the idea that Judge Gorsuch, much like the justice that he would replace the late Anton Scalia, is an originalist or a self-described originalist. Uh, Mr. Dorson, in your Washington Post piece, you contend that it's not quite right to call Neil Gorsuch a strict originalist, and indeed it also wouldn't be correct to call Justice Scalia a strict originalist either. What do you mean by that, and how do you interpret Judge Gorsuch's originalism? Well, the question is, uh, it's an important question because uh, originalism is uh, has been in and out of the spotlight over many over the centuries, really, and the recent one came up in the 1980s, and is now interpreted by strict originalists such as Clarence Thomas that he would his vote on the Constitution would be based on what people at the time the Constitution or its amendments were ratified understood the Constitution to mean. Probably the most important effect, although there are others, of this is in the construction of the Commerce Clause. At the time of the passage of the, of the uh, original ratification of the original Constitution, with some argument on the other side, the commerce was construed narrowly. And uh, manufacturing seemed not to be commerce. And therefore, Justice Thomas not only voted against the Affordable Care Act, but my understanding is that he would vote against all sorts of things from Medicaid, Social Security, on and environmental protection as not involving a proper use of the commerce power. Justice Thomas has a very little respect for stare decisis and would only uh, respect decisions that were uh, originalist, of which there are very few, and I'm not even sure he would do that. Justice Scalia was sort of looser in his originalism in the sense that he followed many of the precedents of the Supreme Court with which he disagreed and took a narrow but important class out of that, including abortion, right to die, and a few others. So that Justice Scalia is a much more complicated interpreter of originalism, and Judge Gorsuch has not been terribly clear on where he falls within the spectrum. Uh, J Judge Thomas is much more against federal power. Justice Scalia was less so. Uh, Judge Gorsuch made some comments, such as he's not going back to the horse and buggy age, but that's rather ambiguous. Uh, and uh, I just think we just do not know yet how Judge Gorsuch would interpret the Constitution, which would take away all sorts of federal power from Congress and the president uh, if he follows someone like Justice Thomas rather than Justice Scalia. Tina Martin? Um, I think. Originalism is a really complicated methodology, and uh, I'll give a couple of examples. So Mr. Dorson talked about the Commerce Clause and, and Justice Thomas wanting to return to an original conception of the Commerce Clause. But what that original conception was really depends upon what level of generality you understand or interpret history. There are a lot of important constitutional historians who think that the main point of the Commerce Clause was to give the federal government power over things that states, for institutional or economic reasons, were ill-equipped to adequately address. And if that's one's understanding of what the, the framers had in mind, 
then um, then a lot of the things in the New Deal uh, aren't uh, unconstitutional, even under an original conception. I'll give you another example. Uh, take affirmative action, race-based affirmative action. Here's an area where the originalists, including Justice Thomas, who purports to be a strict originalist, have ignored original history. The framers of the 14th Amendment themselves engaged in at least some race-based affirmative action, and the so-called colorblind justices that reject any use of race to assist racial minorities um, have never confronted that originalist tension. So all of that is why I go back to the point I discussed earlier. It's important to get justices to weigh in on particular cases to find out what kind of originalists they are, what kind of textualists they are. So if you ask Judge Gorsuch, do you think the case Fisher versus University of Texas upholding University of Texas's race-based affirmative action plan, if you think that is wrong because you're an originalist, then aren't you an inconsistent originalist because here originalism cuts in favor of government latitude, um, not against it. So um, I, I think originalism is, is important and complicated, but you get a read on, on what someone's views on that are only by getting them to weigh in on particular cases. I agree with uh, Dina Marr, and just would like to add one more general comment, and that is not only in my view and the view of many others is originalism sort of bankrupt and archaic and unsuited for our country, but the problem of finding out what the original understanding was with respect to a particular problem, such as uh, one case, um, Kyla, where the issue was whether it was constitutional for police to use a heat detector outside of home to determine whether marijuana was being grown there is extraordinarily difficult. It's, it's sort of like reading tarot cards when you try to find out what the original understanding was as applied to a case like that. So originalism, in my view, is not only totally unsuitable for a modern country like the United States, it is really impossible to uh, ascertain and is further further creates problems that knowledge is constantly increasing. So you have a moving target and you can't have a judicial system based, in my opinion, based on the extent of new research coming up that changes the foundations of the law. And I just think originalism is, is a very dangerous thing and I'm very uncomfortable to the extent uh, to which Judge Gorsuch seems to embrace it even though it seems to be a more moderate way than the strictness of Justice Thomas. I'll add one other example, too. Uh, people may forget, but the seminal Brown versus the Board of Education case involving racial segregation in schools, that was re-argued in the U.S. Supreme Court. The Supreme Court took two years to decide that, and they sought additional briefing and argument on the originalist question, on the question of, uh, what exactly the framers of the 14th Amendment thought about segregation in public schools. And at the end of the day, when the court issued the Brown opinion, it said, we can't really say what the original intent here was, in part because society has changed so much. Public schools were not a big deal in 1868. They're a huge deal in 1954. So we don't know what the framers really would have thought about about segregation in public schools today, given the way public schools operate. So when you ask the question, what would the intent have been 
had they had the information and knowledge we have today, originalism gets, as I said, very complicated. Although everybody does rightly care at some level about what the original uh, uh, design and the original purpose behind a constitutional provision is. Even the most liberal justices acknowledge that we do care about what those words meant when they were used way back when. He's right, and my book discusses the uh, extent of affirmative action in the 18, late 1860s and mid-1860s. The point is that people like Justice Thomas have a pretty free hand in picking from among various readings of the history. It is not a simple matter, and there is enough ambiguity that sometimes saying you're originalist tells you nothing without, as just as Tina uh, Marr said, knowing the specifics of the case and the specifics of the precedent. It's sometimes a license to pick your point of view and close it with some historical indicia that people seem to eat up. Yeah, I believe it was Senator Feinstein that said, well, originalism must mean that you you must believe that segregation in public schools is okay, but it sounds like Dean Amar, I mean, that, that's sort of an oversimplification in, in your view. Yes, indeed. I think um, there have been plenty of uh, what, what I would call progressive originalists, people, and I count myself among them, people who care deeply about the original uh, understanding of the words of the Constitution, who uh, have begun to second-guess or challenge the conservative understandings of those original meanings, uh, and, and segregation is, is a good example. If you ask the framers of the 14th Amendment, is it okay to segregate people along racial lines, maybe they would have said yes. They certainly allowed for segregation in, in marriages and in, in rail cars and the like. But if you ask them the following question, is it unconstitutional to visit upon African Americans um, a badge of inferiority and stigma they would have said yes to that as well. And so what they didn't understand back then is that segregation inherently imposes that kind of subordination, that kind of stigma. And they, there was a tension between their general aspiration and their general intent versus their social uh, psychology understanding of how human relations work. And when you, so how do you know how they would have resolved that if they didn't really have it all together themselves? So that's why I think these things are very, very complex to implement. Another issue that was brought up with some frequency during the hearings, that of uh, the Chevron deference and how Judge Gorsuch might approach it. And this also seems like a place where he and Justice Scalia could potentially diverge. An opinion was cited by Judge Gorsuch where he said at some point, um, I believe the words were that the courts might need to take on the behemoth that is Chevron deference, meaning the agencies that interpret the, the laws in particular ways. Do you feel like um, Dean Amar, Judge Gorsuch, would vote to undo or, or weaken Chevron deference based on the testimony that he gave? From what we know of Judge Gorsuch at the Tenth Circuit, he is more critical of Chevron deference than Justice Scalia was. And it's likely that when he's on the Supreme Court, he will continue to explore um, that uh, theme. But I will point out one other thing. There were, besides Justice Scalia, there are other folks on the court who used to be more fond of deference to executive discretion. I'm speaking here of Justice Alito and Chief Justice Roberts, who, like Justice Scalia, kind of grew up in the Reagan Justice Department when the Chevron Doctrine was first being promulgated, who in recent cases have signaled a lot less deference to the executive branch. So by the end of President Obama's administration, 
you had Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Alito uh, weighing in and expressing fears of an overly powerful executive branch to which too much deference was being given. Now, whether that will change with a new Republican administration or whether that signals an attitudinal shift on the part of at least Alito and Roberts concerning executive power more generally, we'll have to wait and see. Uh, But I would expect that Judge Gorsuch, when he becomes justice, if he does, um, would would explore that theme of, of cutting back some on Chevron, yes. The, uh, the issue of abortion was, was talked about to some extent uh, throughout these hearings and multiple questions were posed about it. But of course, uh, Judge Gorsuch avoided answering with any substance as to how he might come down if a case revisited Roe or, or Casey versus Planned Parenthood. Mr. Dorson, do you have any thoughts as to how Judge Gorsuch's potential confirmation would uh, impact those precedent? Well, I think he's the thing to keep in mind is that he's conservative and seems to give uh, the religious right a lot of comfort. Um, he wouldn't really say much about abortion, yet he said that uh, Bergefell would settle law, which seems somewhat inconsistent. I, I don't see any reason why uh, some a nominee could not say, well, Roe v. Wade is modified by Casey is settled law to some extent, because it, it, it seems to be, and yet people will let, the senators will let a nominee avoid commenting totally on an issue of such complexity, but yet precedent as uh, abortions. Dean Amar, do you feel like there are similar constitutional bases for the rights derived in, in Roe and Obergefell? Do you think it was interesting that Gorsuch was more inclined to acknowledge one and not the other? It is interesting. I mean, Obergefell, of course, has a, a very obvious equality dimension as well as a substantive due process, uh, liberty, privacy dimension that, that undergird Roe. But, you know, modern uh, abortion a- a- analysis beginning with uh, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg's work, uh, understands abortion in gender equality terms as well as as in liberty terms. There are people who take that view. Uh, you know, t- saying something is is a precedent that has been affirmed many times, which is what Judge Gorsuch said about Roe, that doesn't really say very much. Uh, saying a, a case is settled law says a little bit more, but even then um, uh, a lawyer would say, okay, that's just a description of the current state of things. Uh, Obergefell is settled law. That doesn't mean that with uh, two more openings on the Supreme Court and two more uh, justices that it wouldn't be unsettled law. So, uh, again, Judge Gorsuch didn't say, I think Obergefell was correctly decided, even though I would obviously be open to arguments to the contrary. He just characterized cases as precedent or settled law, which is, you know, what you could do in the first year of law school. It doesn't really tell you very much about what one thinks. Uh, one, one, one other point, and that is, no matter what uh, Judge Gorsuch or another nominee says, it, it really doesn't matter. Justice Thomas famously said, I've never thought about or talked about Roe v. Wade. Justice, uh, Chief Justice Roberts said, I just call balls and strikes. There are no consequences from saying what you think everyone wants you to say. It, it's sort of a charade, but nevertheless, some benefit can come from forcing the justice to at least talk about some of these issues. And, and I do think that uh, Mr. Dorsen is exactly right, that you know you could, you could mislead and even lie in these hearings and there's no punishment that would ever befall you. But I do think the kinds of people we nominate to the Supreme Court are, generally speaking, honorable individuals who don't want to lie. They would, they would prefer 
to avoid answering a question than answering it in a way that gives misleading information. So they're loyally and they're careful, but I, I, I don't think that they're inherently dishonest people. Okay. Uh, another issue that was somewhat danced around Senator Feinstein noted a, a couple of opinions where Judge Gorsuch seemed to, to argue that it should be more difficult to convict felons of possessing firearms. But other than that, there didn't seem to be a whole lot of substance in these hearings related to uh, Judge Gorsuch's opinions or inclinations towards the Second Amendment. Um, Dina Marr, do you have any thoughts as to, to how he might approach this area of, of jurisprudence? I don't, but I should add that this is, you know, notwithstanding Heller, uh, the big case uh, from several years ago that recognized that there is an individual uh, gun ownership dimension to the Second Amendment, uh, things are really still pretty open. Uh, one, does, one would not have to overrule Heller to cut back on the expansive vision of the Second Amendment that many people have in their mind. So one of the reasons I don't think we have a clear sense about how, how Judge Gorsuch's Second Amendment views fit in is because the Supreme Court hasn't really had occasion yet or hasn't been forced yet to follow up uh, and really give a lot of content to Heller. Heller was a very narrow case. It was about ownership of handguns for protection at home. It wasn't about uh, trigger locks and ammunition clips and, and, and all the rest. So until there's a little bit more robust Supreme Court jurisprudence, it doesn't surprise me that we wouldn't have a more robust uh, jurisprudence in the Tenth Circuit to talk about uh, uh, with Judge Gorsuch. I agree, and uh, but and also, of course, the Tenth Circuit is more gun country than uh, a lot of other parts of the uh, country, than uh, such as the District of Columbia and New York. Also, I, I firmly believe that the originalism that captured a majority in, in Heller was totally wrong. I mean, I don't think this is the time or place to argue it, but I should just note that uh, my conclusion and the conclusion of many other people is that uh, the uh, jurisprudence of Heller recognizing an abstract individual right to own and possess and shoot guns independent of some sort of uh, collective military uh, community is, is very much in doubt in my mind and should be overruled. And I, uh, However, I don't think uh, Judge Gorsuch would engage in that overruling. Sure. I suppose we might get a chance to find out relatively soon. I understand a Ninth Circuit gun rights case, the Peruta case, was petitioned to, to SCOTUS, I think, uh, this week. So perhaps uh, we'll, we'll get get some more answers to this question. Uh, one, uh, one smaller issue that was raised uh, a couple of times during these hearings was the question of whether Judge Gorsuch would support the implementation of cameras inside the Supreme Court's oral argument chambers. Uh, I always think it's curious that this comes up during nomination hearings. I, it seems like a, a fairly small issue. I, Mr. Dorsen, what do you think the benefits would be of having SCOTUS live on the air? Why does this issue keep coming up? Well, I think it keeps coming up because uh, the most of people want to see the Supreme Court and other courts on television, and uh, the state courts do it without great harm, as far as I can see. Uh, I think that the Supreme Court's a little bit different, uh, both because it it is the highest court in the land, and it's not a trial, and it's rather legally oriented. And I think the major arguments that the uh, that the prevents cameras is the justices' concern for privacy and also the problem of uh, distorting what the Supreme Court 
uh, does and says in, in its work. Uh, there are oral recordings, and they're very rarely used, to, to, at least in my, in my experience. But television is, is pretty powerful, and I think it's more of a selfish interest on the part of justices to keep them, give them some more privacy rather than any overarching constitutional or governmental concept of what's best for the country. Dinamar, how do you weigh the pros and cons of that idea? You know, I don't deny that there are some potential downsides, but I think the educational upside would be terrific. If I take a step back and I, I ask, what's probably the biggest problem with the American judiciary today? Uh, it is that people assume that there's no difference between the way judges operate and the way politicians operate. And even though, as we have discussed for a while now, um, philosophy and uh, uh, intuitions about history and ideology certainly inform constitutional adjudication, I continue to believe that the Supreme Court is, does not sit as a super legislature, that there is something different about constitutional law from partisan politics. And I actually think the more people saw of Supreme Court arguments, the more respect they would have for the judiciary as a whole, even though in some cases like a Bush versus Gore, they may, they may assume that the justices are not always playing it straight. But in the main, in the, on the whole, I think they'd be heartened to see how seriously the justices take the concept of law and, uh, and try to apply it in cases. So I think it would be great uh, for the American people to see that the judiciary operates at a lot higher and more principled level than what happens on the Hill. I think I, I agree with that. I think that's a, a very major benefit that uh, would uh, come from having uh, televised hearings of Supreme Court cases, and also just some more respect for the institutions of the uh, United States, including uh, the Supreme Court. Dina Meyer, Judge Gorsuch was questioned a few times as to how he might feel about campaign finance reform and how he might feel were he a judge and the issue presented in Citizens United versus the Federal Elections Commission were, were brought to him. Of course, he danced around this topic as well, but how, how might you see his uh, jurisprudence with regard to, to this question? You know, I, I haven't studied anything he's said or done um, on the Tenth Circuit that would really bear on this. I I actually think that even though I, I, I'm terribly opposed to how much money uh, uh, influences the political system, I don't see how the Supreme Court had an easy way uh, to decide Citizens United any way besides the way they decided it. If you say that corporations cannot spend money on political campaigns, then you're opening the door to regulating media corporations. So you could limit the amount of money that the New York Times spends on editorials supporting Barack Obama or Hillary Clinton or Bernie Sanders. And if you try to carve out a special media rule in today's society with blogging and the Internet, I'm not sure you could do so easily. So I, I don't uh, have an easy solution to the Citizens United problem. I do think that it would be helpful if the Supreme Court were more open to public financing schemes. And a lot of the conservative justices... Um, have shut down efforts by states and localities to encourage candidates to take advantage of public finance in exchange for them not spending as much private money. Um, so I wish that there were more openness to that, but um, I don't expect Judge Gorsuch will change the Citizens United regime 
but I'm not sure that anyone could easily do that. Well, let me just say briefly that uh, I think Citizens United was wrongly decided. I don't think the restrictions uh, on First Amendment, which which it is, was given a fair chance. I think that this is very difficult. I certainly agree with Tina Moore on that. But uh, I think the current problem where somebody can distort an election by spending money was something far beyond what was understood and contemplated or conceived of uh, when the Constitution was passed. And I believe that some leeway should be given to the legislatures who try to come up with a solution to see if one works. And I think the uh, Supreme Court was a little fast on the trigger. And what we have now where people can spend tens of millions of dollars is just perhaps the worst of all possible worlds. Okay, uh, another leitmotif here um, the Democratic cohort tried to, to bring up time and again was that Judge Gorsuch seemed like he would reliably side against uh, the little man, so the, the employee and uh, labor suits uh, in, in favor of corporations or employers. There was an exchange between Gorsuch and Senator Al Franken about a a particular case involving a, a trucker who had abandoned his freight um, in a in very cold conditions, and uh, Gorsuch had dissented to rule against him. Um, Mr. Dorson, do you feel that Judge Gorsuch's approach would be maybe as friendly towards corporations or employers as the Democrats are, are making out here? Well, uh, that's hard to say. In fact, I, I think it's impossible to say. Certainly, Gorsuch is a conservative, but um, these individual cases often depend on rather close reading of the facts, precedent, language of the statute. Judge uh, Justice Scalia, who was a uh, obviously a conservative, uh, he uh, wrote opinions favoring the uh, EEOC and Labor Department on some of these cases. Now you can try to draw inferences. If I had to bet, I would say that Gorsuch would be to the corporate side of Justice Scalia. How he would compare to others, I don't know, and I think it's hard to generalize from what information we have. Tina Marty, have thoughts on that? I would just echo something Mr. Dorson uh, adverted to, and this also relates to that Tenth Circuit case that was just reversed by the Supreme Court during the hearing. Remember, as a lower court judge, Judge Gorsuch is bound by Tenth Circuit precedent. So one of the reasons why it's hard to know what he thinks is because he's hemmed in a lot more than any of the current justices are. Keep going back to this because I think it's important all of which makes it very important that we get information from nominees about what they think of Supreme Court opinion, that they're then going to be in the position of reconsidering if they so choose. But, um, you know, characterizations about uh, favoring corporate interests over the little guy, it's so context-specific, it's so uh, driven by lower court precedent that I just don't know that we have a ton of data to make sweeping generalizations on right now. That's not to say that the justices don't favor one side or the other, because there's a huge difference in how just individual justices vote to uphold or reverse uh, lower courts when they, you know, in the context of uh, labor disputes and discrimination disputes. But uh, what I'm talking about, at least, is that you really cannot tell, and I agree completely with uh, Dean uh, Amar on the importance of the precedent for a just judge who's on a court lower than the Supreme Court. 
Do you know more at that point you mentioned about the Supreme Court ruling that came down on Wednesday during the hearing that was a unanimous reversal of a Tenth Circuit decision? I don't think the Gorsuch was actually involved in the decision that was overturned, but he had written another opinion that had relied upon it, if I'm correct. Uh, Democrats certainly tried to make some hay out of this, uh, an example of Judge Gorsuch's jurisprudence being overturned. But um, what was your take uh, on those exchanges, and did they try to make up maybe more of it than was actually there? Well, I think to me, this is an illustration of how frustrating it can be when you can't get a judge to answer questions because he is standing behind uh, uh, an illusory wall of judicial independence. Um, So you you look for anything that you can sink your teeth into. I I think overruling a Tenth Circuit case um, on which Judge Gorsuch had himself relied because that was the Tenth Circuit precedent doesn't say much about Judge Gorsuch other than Judge Gorsuch tended to follow 10th Circuit precedent. Now, maybe you could say um, he should have called for the, the circuit to reconsider this bad rule, um, but that's not a, a really uh, huge criticism of, of a lower court judge. Um, to me, this is not a big deal, but it does illustrate that the real meat of the hearing um, kind of never, uh, never materialized. And at the end of the day, the hearing really was not very interesting, as most of the recent ones aren't, again, because senators have not pressed nominees to really give answers of the kind that Robert Bork did. Uh, And for the life of me, I'm not quite sure why smart senators um, don't follow up. And when the judge says, I cannot answer that question because that would call into doubt my independence, if this issue were to come before me on the court, I don't understand why a senator doesn't say, are you saying, Mr. Nominee, that Judge Bork was violating judicial ethics? Or are you saying that the Supreme Court in the Republican Party of of Minnesota versus White struck down uh, a law that was itself required by judicial ethics? Um, Are you saying that any any case you have talked about, uh, you violated judicial ethics already so far? I don't understand why they don't really press nominees more. But until and unless they do that, then the rest of this stuff doesn't matter very much. Yeah, it, it certainly seems like it would be a much more worthwhile exercise if there could be some more substantive engagement with these issues. Certainly, it would be more entertaining viewer viewing for court watchers. Um, but let's get to the bottom line here. As you mentioned at the outset um, earlier today, recording here on, on Thursday, Democrats signaled that they would intend to, to filibuster Judge Gorsuch's nomination. So, um, Mr. Dorson, what what happens next? How how do you see this nomination proceeding? Well, it's just it's anyone's guess. Uh, the, the Republicans have a solid uh, 52 votes. Uh, they need, in order to break a filibuster, they, ha- they need 60. If they cannot get uh, eight Democrats, the alternative for them is to change the rule, which they can do by majority vote, and in effect abolish the filibuster and have a strict majority vote on Supreme Court justices, just as uh, there is now as a result of the Democrats' actions, a majority vote without filibuster on lower court judges. Uh, This is strict politics. Uh, It's uh, also the sort of vengeance for the way the Republicans handled Merrick Garland. And uh, I think ultimately it may come down to just falling on their sword in an effort to make a political point. Uh, another question which uh, I, I thought about but have no real answer to is whether it's in the Democrats' uh, 
interest at this time to abolish the uh, filibuster on Supreme Court justices, knowing that they probably will be in the minority uh, for at least a little while longer, maybe a lot longer. So uh, it's it's really politics and strategy, and I, I don't know what they should do, and I'm not sure they know what they should do. Dean Moore, how do you uh, envision these next few days and weeks unfolding? I think uh, Mr. Dorsen uh, uh, stated it very well. I think a lot of it comes down to the uh, few uh, senators on the Republican side who occasionally uh, don't fall in line with the Republican leadership and whether uh, there are more than, than, uh, than one or two of those folks who would deny the Republicans the 50 votes they would need to blow up the filibuster. Remember, they have uh, Vice President Pence, so they really would need 50 plus Pence to undo the filibuster. The only other point I would add is that it's not just about undoing the filibuster with regard to Supreme Court nominees, although I think that's how uh, the proceedings here would be framed if the Republicans can't uh, get 50 votes for cloture. But as Mr. Dorson pointed out, you have to look forward, and once you undo the filibuster for lower court judges, as has been done, and then for Supreme Court nominees, you may be on the road to undoing the filibuster more generally. And again, a minority party in the Senate may be reluctant to do that, um, uh, you know, as we look out uh, uh, like uh, things like Obamacare repeal, et cetera. Okay, uh, maybe last one, just looking ahead. Let's assume that the nomination of Judge Gorsuch moves forward and, and he is confirmed. Mr. Dorson, how would you describe Supreme Court with Judge Gorsuch added to it? How do you think uh, its jurisprudence would be uh, impacted throughout the next uh, few decades? Well, I think, first of all, it's going to be a lot duller place. Uh, uh, I've attended arguments both before, while Justice Scalia was there and after, and there's a, there's a different tone, and I think uh, uh, the boredom factor is pretty is going to grow because most cases are not terribly interesting to most people, at least. But as far as the jurisprudence, it's really, for the reasons we've been talking about, it's going to be very hard to tell. I think you're going to have a justice who probably, in general, would have the same kind of balance between uh, liberal and conservative opinions. If I had to guess, I would say that Judge Gorsuch will be another John Roberts rather than another Sam Alito. In other words, much more willing to... Uh, recognize a uh, minority in other points of view. And in recent year or two, uh, there have just been an awful lot of cases in which the dissenters were Alito and Thomas, and it has been uh, 6-2. So I, I don't think it's going to be a watershed. And the next question is, who's going to be the next justice to leave the court? And that is, uh, I think, a much more... Well, of course, uncertain, but also much more important uh, issue uh, or consequence than uh, the replacement of Scalia by Judge Gorsuch. Dean Amar? Again, I think Mr. Dorsen put it extremely well. Uh, this, this opening was historically noteworthy in an opportunity cost sense. Had Hillary Clinton won the White House and the Democrats been able to fill this seat, assuming she could have carried the Senate as well, uh, then that would have been a big turning point because the Democrats would have had a majority of justices on the court for, uh, from their side of the aisle for the first time uh, since the late 60s, early 70s. So this opening held the potential to be momentous, but given the, uh, the election results last November, 
it's largely a placeholding um, uh, event. Uh, Judge Gorsuch is likely to largely replicate um, uh, Justice Scalia. I agree with Mr. Dorson that he may be a little bit more like Roberts than Alito or Scalia, um, and that's not going to have huge consequences in changing the, the, the law going forward. Uh, but everything, of course, turns on the next opening uh, and when that happens and who's president at that time. And if it does happen in the next few years and you have Trump in the White House and the, and the Republicans uh, in the Senate are still controlling, uh, then then that's the big deal. Uh, well, certainly then it sounds like it's becoming a, a theme of late. There's interesting times to come in, in the political and jurisprudential world. I uh, really appreciate you guys both being here to speak with me about it. Uh, Dean Vikram Amar from the University of Illinois College of the Law, and Mr. David Dorson of Counsel at Cedric in Washington, D.C. Thank you both very much. Thank you. Thank you both. I very much enjoyed it. And with that, our program for March 24th, 2017 is complete. I'd like to take one more opportunity to thank both of my guests, Dean Vikram Amar, the University of Illinois College of Law, and David Dorson from Cedric LLP. I'd like to thank you as well, our listener, for tuning in. It's greatly appreciated. Don't forget that one CLE credit can be yours for just completing a short true-false test. It can be found on the dailyjournal.com page where this program appears. It's more, I'm Brian Cardile. I look forward to speaking to you next Friday. Have a great week.